We've been going through the book of Acts for the past six months, maybe more. And this is our last week. We are wrapping things up today. We'll be reading Acts 28, 23 to, 20, uh, 23 to 31, which is the very last section of Acts. And it includes some themes that have been pretty prominent throughout the whole book. And so it'll be a little bit of a recap sermon, recap some major themes um, with some new material as well. But um, last week, what we did was we covered Acts 27. And Pastor Allen, he talked about um, Paul being the Paul, the, he's been sort of the main character in the second half of the book. He was a prisoner, and he's been transported. He's, he is a prisoner now, and he's been transported to Rome on the ship. And there was a shipwreck, uh, and uh, everyone is saved. And um, then we get to Acts 28, and I'm going to summarize it real quick. Paul gets bitten by a snake. He lives. He heals some folks. They travel some more. They go to Rome. Okay, And then uh, Paul, he's in Rome, and... Uh, he's fortunate enough that he's actually not put into a physical prison. He's put under house arrest. So he gets to live uh, in this place, in, in this regular home. And people start to visit him. And he sort, of, he sort of develops a reputation of, oh, this is the Jesus guy. And so a lot of people, they go to him to learn about who Jesus is. And so he's able to connect with some local Jewish leaders. And uh, people set a date. And they're like, oh, this sounds interesting. Let's, let's set an event and let's hear what you have to say. So that's sort of the context of today's passage. Uh, let's read Acts 28, starting from verse 23 to the end of the chapter. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers. They is these local Jewish leaders. And they came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You'll ever be hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So there's a lot to point out from this passage, and um, we'll just sort of be going through it you know, bit by bit. But the first thing I want to point out is verse 24, which says, Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. And this statement sort of summarizes a lot of these evangelistic uh, presentations in the book of Acts. So-and-so would give a speech of some sort, and this would be the result. There would be mixed results. Some people would believe, and some people wouldn't. And here's some other examples. Uh, Acts 14.4, the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. Here's another example, uh, Acts 17.4-5, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Is it a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women? But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started to riot in the city. So as you can see, uh, every, almost every time we have some sort of gospel presentation, there's mixed results. Some people believe, some people don't. And sometimes it got so bad, the opposition was so bad, that people would even try to kill Paul. 
or kill whoever's delivering these messages. But interestingly, Paul never seems surprised that there's opposition. It seems like he not only expected opposition, but he even, and this is where it gets sort of fascinating, he, he attributes the opposition to God's will. Um, he, he, in this passage that we read in Acts 28, he says, he said, he recognizes that some people oppose him, some people, I'm sorry, some people believe, some people oppose him, and then he, what he does, he says, this is a fulfillment of this prophecy from Isaiah. It was part of God's plan all along that some people would not believe, that some people uh, would have their eyes closed, and they would have their hearts hardened, and that was also part of God's plan. Um, he, and, and what he does is he cites Isaiah 6, and Isaiah 6 which takes place hundreds of years before Paul. Uh, this is sort of the context. The, eyes, uh, the, uh, the prophet, he gets a vision from God, and in this vision from God, uh, this is the whole scene with the charcoal in his mouth, and, 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 then, and then God says, uh, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then Isaiah says, here am I, send me. It's that passage, and if, you're, if you've been around in Christian circles, you might be familiar with that passage, and we often think about that passage in the context of evangelism or missions, right? God is saying, who's going to go for us? And Isaiah says, send me. But in this original context, the message that God then gives Isaiah after Isaiah says, send me, is actually not a message of hope. It's a message of judgment. So I'm going to, I'm going to read this, okay? Isaiah 6, 8-10. Then I hear the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Oh, sorry. My bad. I'm going the wrong way. And then, verse 9, he said, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now, this last section might seem very odd, because it, it goes against what we would naturally expect of the God of the Bible, because it says, make their hearts callous, make their ears dull, close their eyes, otherwise they might turn and be healed. And we might think, what in the world? Don't, isn't that the opposite of what we want? Don't we want people to turn and be healed? Why is it, does it seem like it's a bad thing? Like, do this, communicate this, because if you don't do this, then, you know, otherwise they might turn and they, may, they might be healed. You know, because, and here's where the conflict comes, and we're going to spend a little bit of time on this, because I think this is, this is sort of a difficult thing to sort of wrap our minds around. Usually when we talk, when we think about speaking for God, when we think about, you know, being a prophet or being an evangelist or being someone who communicates God's will, usually our goal is that the message that we give will soften people's hearts, it will open people's eyes so that people will repent and then so that they will turn to God. But here, the message seems to have the opposite effect. When we communicate, communicate to them, sometimes it hardens people's hearts, and it closes their eyes, and this is done, and the end result is they would not repent, and they would not turn, and they would not be healed. Okay, so here's this diagram, all right? So this is how we naturally think about when we communicate God's will. This is what we want to do, okay? We speak to people. As a result, their eyes are open. As a result, they repent. As a result, they're healed. But according to Isaiah 6, this is the opposite thing is going on, okay? We speak to people, and the result is their eyes become closed. They do not repent, and they are not healed. 
And I, I think, you know, I'm going to even push this fold a little bit. This is not just isolated to uh, Isaiah 6. This concept actually appears all over the Bible. And it's kind of sobering. We see this, for example, in uh, Exodus. The Israelites are slaves in Egypt, okay? And God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and to tell Pharaoh to let, to let the people of Israel go. And what is the end result? Multiple times it's mentioned that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Because Moses goes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And as a result, he is more stubborn in refusing to let Israel go. And what is the result of that? God sends plagues. And there's tremendous turmoil and destruction in the land of Egypt. We also see this, for example, in Jesus' ministry. You know, this passage that we read in Isaiah 6 is quoted multiple times in the New Testament. We read one of the times. is in Acts 28. Uh, but it's, it's recorded, in fact, in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in every context, we see this effect of Jesus communicating things to his hearers, and the result is that people's hearts are hardened. And then this passage is quoted. And in fact, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's, uh, it's, they're all very similar formulas where what happens is Jesus tells the parable of the sower. And uh, for church folks, that's the parable where there's a sower, he sows seeds, and it falls on this soil, and this soil, and this soil, and this soil. So that's that parable. Jesus tells that parable. And then he says, sort of this cryptic line, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And then the disciples in private, after his public presentation, the disciples in private, they ask him, well, why do you speak in parables? And then what Jesus does is he quotes Isaiah 6. And then he explains the meaning of the parable in private, only to his disciples. Okay, so here's one of these examples, Mark 4, 9 to 12. Then Jesus said, so he just finished his parable of the sower. He says, whoever has ears to hear, hear let them hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that, and here's Isaiah 6 quote, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. So again, I'm just, I'm just nailing down this concept because it appears all over the Bible, and this is one of the things that we don't really talk about because it makes it feel a little bit unsettled. You might think, if you're not really familiar with the idea of parables, you might think that Jesus told parables, you know, in a, in a, in a way that's sort of similar to the way modern pastors tell stories when they preach sermons, okay? The goal is to help explain his points, okay? You might think Jesus has this theological point to communicate. It's a little bit abstract. So what he does, he tells a story, and the story helps to make the point more clear, and that, you know, pastors do that all the time in sermons. But Jesus, according to this passage, he told parables for the exact opposite reason. Okay, he tells parables so that some people would not understand the point. That seems to be what he, that's the natural reading of this explanation. And you see that because in this story, Jesus explained the parable and he never explained it publicly. He only explained it privately to his disciples. Those outside of his inner circle, they never understood the parable of the sower. We know what the parable of the sower means only because he told it to his inner circle of disciples, and those people wrote it down. He never explained the meaning to those on the outside. You know, it's sort of like, um, 
and when VK and I, VK is my wife, when, uh, when we're, having, we're having a conversation and uh, our kids are listening in and we want to talk about things that we don't want them to hear, so usually what we do is we spell out the words because our kids, they're not old enough to spell yet. Well, at least they do have sight words, but some words they, can't know, they don't know yet, okay? So we, we'll say something like, hey, after dinner, what do you think about getting I-C-E-C-R-E-A-M? Okay, so we, we do that. That spells ice cream, if you're not familiar, okay? So we do that so that our kids, they're not tuning in. They don't know that that's a possibility, right? So we are intentionally talking in a way such that our kids will not understand. And that seems to be what Jesus is doing with these parables. That seems to be what Isaiah was doing. That seems to be what Moses was doing with Pharaoh. It, it, that seems to be doing, to an extent, what, what, what Paul is doing. They're intentionally talking in such a way so that some people would not understand, so that they would not listen, so that they would not be receptive, so that they would not repent and turn to God. And so, and here's where the rubber meets the road. This is where the predicament is, okay? Because we know there are plenty of other passages that seem to contradict this example, this, this uh, theology, this doctrine, because there are passages that say, for example, in, uh, in First or Second Timothy, that God longs for all people to come to repentance. So how do we reconcile passages like that? How do we reconcile that passage, God longs for all people to come to repentance, that none should perish, with these passages that seem to say that God does not want some people to come to him, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Okay, I'm going to, before I resolve that, I'll attempt to resolve that, I'm going to add some more confusion to the matter, okay? Okay, so I want to read two more passages, and, and in my opinion, these two passages, I think, are some of the hardest passages to wrestle with, especially to us moderners, okay? okay it's, they're just so unsettling and so sobering. The first is in Joshua. Joshua as a whole, is already a pretty tough book because the premise of the book is God telling the people of Israel to go into this land where people already live and to kill everyone in the land. Okay, that's really the premise of Joshua. Okay, so that's already kind of a, a tough thing to wrap our minds around. But check this out. This is Joshua 11, 19 to 20. And the context is, you know, Joshua is sending people in to kill the people of Canaan. Okay, this is what it writes. Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites, who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel, so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So do you catch what this is saying? I, you know, the first time I read this, I did like some double takes, triple takes, like what, what is going on? It says the Lord himself, so some people even have this philosophy, oh, God doesn't harden people's, heart, hardens people's hearts. It's the people themselves who harden their hearts. Okay, this seems to paint it pretty clearly that the Lord himself hardened people's hearts. Why? So that they would not make peace with Israel. They would not initiate peace treaties with Israel because if they did, they wouldn't die. And it was God's will that they would all be exterminated without mercy. Okay, that sounds... That sounds pretty fire and brimstone. That sounds pretty ugly, okay? But that's, that's in the book of Joshua, okay? That's pretty sobering. Okay, here's another one from 1 Samuel. Similar concept. 1 Samuel, if the context is, there's a guy named Eli who has these two wicked sons. And uh, Eli is always trying to talk to his kids, like, why are you being bad? You try to be good, okay? And this is what happens, okay? 1 Samuel 2, 25. 
His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Man, what a pass! What a Bible verse. Okay, that's not a passage you put on a mug. All right. Okay, so it says. Okay, this is this is what this verse is saying. These guys, they did not listen to their father's rebuke. Why? Because God had a will for them. It was God's hand was in the matter. God did not want them to listen to the father's rebuke because God wanted them to die. God wanted them to suffer the consequences of the sin and to die. Okay, so what do these passages mean? Okay, um, I think there's a lot of different ways to go about this, to explain this, and there's a lot of different theories, and we've been talking about this for hours. But I think one way to think about this is some people are so evil, so wicked, so filled with sin that they incur God's judgment. And this judgment isn't just punishment, like, you know, death, or something like that. The punishment is also, it also includes the hardening of your heart. So some people think that, you know, you sort of have a, a linear, when you think about hardening of heart, this is how you think, okay? You, you, you harden your heart, and as a result, you sin. But the opposite is also true. When you sin, one of the potential consequences is that God hardens your heart, such that as a result, you sin even more. So, so, one, so this is it's almost like this never-ending vicious cycle where you sin, and as a punishment of your sin, God hardens your heart, and because your heart is hardened, then you sin even more, and as a consequence of that, God hardens your heart even more, and then you just keep going and going until you die. We see that pattern with Pharaoh in Egypt, right? His heart, his heart becomes more and more hardened the longer this sort of drama, this narrative, drags out. We see this with Eli's sons. And, um, and, and sort of, here's another way to think about this, okay? Another, uh, one of the punishments of sin is a lifestyle of even more sin. One of the punishments of sin is a lifestyle of even more sin. And we also see a glimpse of this in Romans 1. In Romans 1, Paul is talking about uh, how God's wrath is being poured out against the wicked. And it says that because of their sin, he talks about how all the different ways they're incurring God's wrath. And then it says, because of their sin, God gave them up to their sinful desires. So you see what's going on? They sin, and as a punishment for their sin, they have even more sin. God has given them up into even more sin. And I, I'm, I'm hammering on this because I think this is a sober warning for those of us who play around with sin. Um... When we sin, it's not just, okay, this is not every case, okay, but sometimes. When we sin, it's not just that we bear the consequences of sin, you know, and the consequences are like, oh, you know, we have a bad day or we get on someone's nerves. Like, one of the consequences of sin is that we harden, our, our hearts become hardened, such that it becomes easier to sin the next time, and we become more prone to sin the next time. Um... And maybe at this point, maybe you'll be, you know, you might have this fear that might rise to the surface, and you might apply this fear to other people or yourself. And this fear is, if that's the case, then how do we get out? Are we just a lost cause when we sin? Maybe we'll think about other people, 
you know, we might think, like, you know, I've been sharing the gospel with this family member or with this friend for such a long time. I've been praying for them for such a long time. But what if that's, what if their hearts are hardened? What if what Isaiah 6 is prophesying applies to them here? That I have shared the gospel with them and they heard it and they rejected it. And as a result, their heart has become hardened such that they are more prone to reject it next time. Or maybe you're not thinking about other people, you're thinking about yourself. You know, what if I'm the lost cause? What if God has given up on me? What if God has hardened my heart because I've sinned and as a result, my heart has become hardened and I sin even more. I'm sort of stuck in this cycle. And I think given some of the passages we read, I think it's appropriate to ask those questions. And I think these passages should be a sober warning for us. That's why in Hebrews it says, do not harden your hearts, right? Because that's a risk for us all, Christian or non-Christian alike. But I also want to say this, because that's not the full picture. We see those verses in the Bible, but we also, we also see something else in the Bible that has more prominent uh, airtime, if, if you would say, screen time. It, it's more prominent in the Bible, which is this other concept that with God, there is always hope. With God, there's always hope, grace, and redemption. And we know that with certainty because there's all sorts of passages throughout the Bible that also say that one day God will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. One day you will be born again. One day you'll be a new creation. And, and there's all these languages, all, all of this language in the Bible that seems to imply that all of this dynamic that happens, you know, where you sin as a punishment of your sin, your heart is hardened so that you sin again and you're stuck in the cycle. This dynamic that happens, if you follow Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, that cycle can be done away with. That's also a message in the Bible. Even, and this is true, even of the nation of Israel. So in Acts 28, when Paul quotes Isaiah 6, He's, he's applying this passage to the nation of Israel, to the, people, to the Jewish folks who have been listening to him, because he's talking to these Jewish leaders, and some of them believe and some of them don't, and he applies this verse to them from Isaiah 6, and he says, from now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. So it, you might read this, and you might go, oh, it might seem like the Jewish folks, they're a lost cause. But that's not the case, because there's other passages where Paul makes it clear there is still hope, even for the nation of Israel. We see this, for example, in Romans 11. In Romans 11, uh, Paul is talking about how the people, many of the Jewish people have rejected the gospel. And he writes this. this I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but you can read it on your own time. But I think this is fascinating. Okay, so verse 11. Again, I ask, did they, he's talking about the people of Israel, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? In other words, are they a lost cause? Has God completely given up on them? Have their hearts been totally hardened? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if the transgression means riches for the world and the loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? So what Paul is saying is similar to what he's saying in Acts 28. These people have rejected the gospel. And as a result, the gospel has been opened to the Gentiles. And so people who are not Jews, now they have the opportunity to believe the gospel. And, and he says, and he has this sort of logical 
thing where he, where he goes, if their rejection of the gospel means the salvation of the Gentiles, then their potential acceptance of the gospel, their inclusion, will have even more fruit. And then he keeps going. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Verse 22, I'm going to skip down to verse 22. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in this kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they, this, so he's talking about, if you, if you have been accepted by God and you follow Jesus, you don't have hardened of hearts, watch out, you might still fall. That's what he's saying. And now he's talking about the people who did have unbelief. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Okay, so what he's saying is, he has this big analogy. You know, there's this olive tree. The branches of the olive tree fell off. Those are the Jews. And then you have these wild branches. Those are the Gentiles. They've been grafted into the olive tree. And he's saying, you've been grafted in. So obviously, the original olive tree branch, they can be grafted in as well. That's what he's saying, okay? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Okay, so this is what Paul is saying. I'm getting a little bit in the weeds, but I want to wrap things up in a bow in a bit, okay? First, he gives a hypothetical situation. He says, if these Jewish people do not persist in unbelief, if they return, they repent, they come to God, they will be grafted in, okay? They have not been rejected forever. If they repent, they will come in. And then he goes even further, he says, and they will be grafted in. He makes a, it's not just a hypothetical situation. He makes a prediction, a prophecy, if you will, that one day, even though they're going through a, hard, a partial hardening right now, one day all Israel will be saved. And I think that's just a beautiful message for those of us who have lost hope that whether it's someone else out there or whether it's ourselves, that we just feel like we're as hard as rock. We've been sharing the gospel with these folks. Or we've been sucking this in. And it just feels, it feels like this language, it feels like Isaiah 6 is being applied to us. That we hear, we never understand. Our, our ears are dull. Our eyes are closed. We just don't get it. We're just stuck. Even if that's the case for us, this passage makes it clear that there is still yet hope. Wild branches can be grafted into the olive tree, Branches that have fallen, on, fallen off, they can be grafted into the olive tree. One day, we may be saved. It doesn't matter how far gone you think you might be, or you think so-and-so may be. One day, we have the chance to be grafted in as well. Um, and what I love about this, it, it, the way Paul talks about this, is he makes it seem like this whole thing is part of God's plan. You know, sometimes when we face opposition, when we feel like, you know, this hardened heart, it, it, it's almost, we have this picture of like, you know, the God in, in the cosmic, at the cosmic level, you have God on one side and Satan on the other side, and they're sort of duking it out, and like, oh, God is winning right now, oh, Satan is winning right now, and it's kind of like a basketball game, like this team shoots a three, and this team shoots a three, I was watching the Warriors-Kings game last night. Anyways, so it seems like, oh man, it's so close, who's going to win? 
But the way Paul talks about it, that's not the case. He makes it seem like God is orchestrating the whole thing. God is orchestrating the whole thing from the beginning to the end. It's not the case that God is winning sometimes and Satan is winning sometimes. Even the hardening of hearts, even these instances where like people are clearly not obeying God, even that is part of God's will. The whole thing from beginning to end is part of God's plan. It's God's will that sometimes people's heart will be hardened for whatever reason, and it's God's will that some, those, some of those people will be saved as well. Like the whole thing is under God's control, under his providence. Um, and that's also pointed to throughout the Bible as well. Remember earlier we read Isaiah 6, you know, about God hardening people's hearts. I want to reread that. I'm sorry, I'm not going to reread. I'm going to keep going. So earlier I read uh, up to verse 10. And I'm going to read verse 11 to the end because I think this is where it gets even more fascinating, all right? So this is Isaiah 6. God just told them, God just told Isaiah, say this message so that they would not understand, so that they would not turn and they would not be healed. This is verse 11. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. Okay, so God is going on. It's going to be really bad. And you think it's going to get pretty bad, and it's going to get even worse. And you think that's the end, and it's going to get even worse. Okay, so it's really bad. Bad news, destruction, chaos, forsakenness. But then check out this very last line, the very last line of the chapter. But us, the terebinth and oak, these are trees, leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So there's this little hint, this little hint, that even though it seems like there's chaos and destruction and there's no hope, every, it's, like, it's like General Sherman in the Civil War, just totally burning everything. It seems like everything is destroyed. There's a little bit of hope. There's a stump that's left over, and the stump will be a holy seed. What does that mean, that the stump is a holy seed? Well, later on in Isaiah, um, uh, Expand on this language of the Holy Seed. In Isaiah 11, 1, we'll pick this up again. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's dad, and sort of he's talking about this Davidic royal line. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. So this is sort of what Isaiah is talking about. I'm sort of summarizing the whole book of Isaiah, of course. But this is a prophecy, okay, that there will be total destruction, seemingly, Total chaos, seemingly, it seems like there will be nothing left. There will be no hope, seemingly, but there will remain a stump, and the stump will be a holy seed. And out of the stump will grow a little shoot, a shoot like a little, a little plant that will come out, and this plant will become a new tree that will bear fruit. That's what it's saying. And what is it talking about? We know in hindsight, this is a Jesus and his kingdom. This is Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus was a shoot that came out of the stump of Jesse. In other words, in the midst of all the destruction and the chaos, People were thinking, like, oh, our, our nation is destroyed. The temple's torn down. The people have exiled, are exiled. There's no hope. That's, that's the forest fire. Out of this scene, there will be this little stump. A shoot will come out. That's Jesus. And what will Jesus do? He will establish this kingdom. And this kingdom will start off small. It will look like a handful of Jewish folks huddled up in the upper room of Jerusalem. That's what the kingdom will look like. But it will grow. One day, Peter's going to preach the sermon at Pentecost, and 3,000 people will be saved. And one day, 
Philip's going to go to this desert and hang out with this Ethiopian eunuch riding on this chariot, and this Ethiopian eunuch will be saved. And one day, Peter's going to get this vision about, you know, this blanket falling from the sky. He's going to meet this guy named Cornelius, and Cornelius and his whole household will be saved. And one day, this guy, going to, this guy named Paul is going to be going to Damascus, and he's going to be persecuting the Jews, and God will appear to him, and he's going to be saved. And then Paul and Silas are going to go traveling around, and they're going to go to this random prison in Philippi, and he's going to preach the gospel to these jailers, to this jailer, and he and his family, they're going to be saved. And slowly but steadily, this shoot is going to become a tree, and it's going to bear fruit. And, and throughout the book of Acts, you see this pattern over and over, that sometimes it looks like forest fires, there's beatings, there's imprisonments, there's shipwrecks, and despite all of that, what we see is this little shoot that keeps growing and growing and growing. Despite all the evil that is, it seems like the devil is throwing at the church, the church just keeps growing. And even though Paul was under house arrest in Rome, this is so crazy to imagine. Okay? Paul is under house arrest in Rome, we read that in these final verses in Acts, this is how Acts ends. The last two verses, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And this is just, I mean, this just seems like a lie, okay? How, how can you say that Paul is preaching without hindrance when throughout the book of Acts, you see hindrance after hindrance? You see so many people who are trying to stop Paul, trying to kill Paul, and we know the end of the story. It's not recorded here in Acts, but Paul eventually, tradition holds, is beheaded. So how is it the case that he is preaching with all boldness and without hindrance? Because the book of Acts ultimately is not about Paul. The book of Acts is ultimately about the church. And what might seem like a hindrance at the small level is not a hindrance at the big level because and this is what the the book of acts illustrates this is what all these prophecies illustrate that all of the evil that is done even the hardening of hearts that is done even all of those things are part of god's plan that god is using it all and because god is using it all none of it was a step in the wrong direction all of it is part of god's plan to grow this church and to expand the kingdom to continue on to where it is today. You know, one of the things about the book of Acts that's sort of funny is it sort of ends, uh, ends abruptly. You know, you, when you read the book of Acts, it doesn't seem like a natural ending. You just, you just see Paul is under house arrest and he's preaching the gospel and then it ends. And that's because, again, the book of Acts is not just about Paul. It's about the church. The book of Acts is the beginning of the, the story of the church, which is still being written today. The holy seed that was the stump has now become a full-blown tree bearing fruit, and it is still growing today. Despite all the difficulties throughout history, not just the book of Acts, but throughout church history, when you think about all the difficulties that have happened, the persecution that took place in the Roman Empire, the medieval crusades, even some of the abuse scandals that have gone on in the modern evangelical American church, despite all of these difficulties, the church continues to grow. God continues to work, God continues to save, and God continues to grow. 
And we see the evidence throughout the book of Acts, and we see the evidence throughout church history, that the kingdom of God is unstoppable. Because God is in the whole thing, from the beginning to the end, in the good, in the bad, and in the ugly. We see that God will win in the end. Uh, yesterday we were at the Transformation Center, and uh, it was a great experience. We got to meet this guy named Reds uh, as part of the process. And Reds, he, uh, he just has this amazing story. Born and raised in Baltimore, uh, made some bad decisions as a teenager. He was addicted to heroin by eight, age 15. For 25 years, he went through this vicious cycle of what seemed like hopelessness, what seemed like being a lost cause. It seemed like forest fire of addiction, imprisonment, rehab, falling into just sin after sin after sin, never getting out. That's what it seemed like. It seemed like his heart was hardened. But one day, 18 years ago, he walked into a church, he trusted in Jesus, he was saved. And now he's 18 years clean. And now he's the production manager. I think he said he's the t-shirt company production manager for the for the uh, Transformation Center, and he mentors other people who've been formerly incarcerated. How is that possible? It's possible because of how hopeless, that despite how hopeless things may seem, God is still at work. It's possible because the hardships and the turmoil, the difficulties that we go through, even those things are part of God's plan. The hardening of hearts is even part of God's plan. Because God is in the business of rescuing people in the midst of their sin. Not because they do things right, but because they do things wrong. Those are exactly the kinds of people who God rescues. So I just want to encourage you, you know, regardless of where you are in your story, if you feel like you're sharing the gospel with so-and-so and their heart is hardened, I just want this you know, this to be a reminder to you. Those are exactly the kind of people that God loves rescuing. And if you're here today and you feel like your own heart is hardened, again, the same promise is there. You are the, exactly the kind of person God, that God loves rescuing. This, the book of Acts is complete. It's, it's done. But the book of the church, some of it is still unwritten. And some of it, you have the opportunity to be a co-author of. You get to help write the story of the church with your own life. And you can write with confidence that God is behind you, that God is with you, and God will win in the end. So I encourage you to live out the gospel, to live these sold-out lives with radical generosity, radical community, radical evangelism. Do it with the boldness, with the confidence that God is with you, proclaiming the kingdom of God without hindrance. Be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you so much for the kingdom that was not built by human hands, but it is built by you. And because it is built by you, it will never fall. There may be times when it seems like there's no hope, it seems like utter despair and destruction and chaos and futility. It seems like no matter how hard we try, it seems like there's no progress. There may be days where it seems like that. But God, let this book of Acts be a reminder to us that all of these difficulties are part of your plan. 
that if these beatings, these imprisonments, even this hardening of hearts, even if, if those things are a part of your plan, that the, then the difficulties that we go through, maybe they're a part of your plan as well. And we can trust in you, like we talked about last week. You are a God who loves saving the people who are caught in shipwrecks. And not a hair on our head will be harmed. So may we place our trust in you with the confidence of the gospel, that the gospel is sure, the kingdom is sure, the church is sure, and we can ride on with confidence. It doesn't matter what we went through. It doesn't matter what decisions we made yesterday or even this morning. That this vicious cycle of sin and hardening and sin and hardening, that was broken when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. And that message of victory can continue on in our lives. May we live with hope, resilience, courage, victory, proclaiming the gospel, expanding the kingdom without hindrance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.